Greetings, dear listeners. Before we get started, a reminder to head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and consider becoming a paying subscriber if you're not one yet. You'll get access to, among other things, the full conversation, as well as other subscriber-only benefits. And don't forget to give us a like and review on your favorite podcast app. With all that out of the way, on to the show. Hey, hey. Oh, oh, that's catchy. Yeah. I don't know where, where I made that up from. It's funny. <laughs> Wait, isn't that a common chant in protests? I don't know. Well, okay. you don't go... You, have you ever gone to a protest? Not not in earnest, no. Not to protest anything. I've gone you, to wait, observe. Wait, seriously? You've never, even when you were younger, you never no. participated? No. Wow. I never had commitments. <laughs> I don't be- I don't quite believe that. I mean, I always had negative commitments. I think that's right. Like contrary. What were the negative mean? ones in in college? Uh, no, all I'm saying is like I I uh what is the that famous like Lionel Trilling uh definition of conservatism? Uh a series of irritable mental gestures. That's me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a series of irritable mental gestures. But how did you have those so early in your life? Because usually those irritable mental gestures don't come until one grows older. I don't know. I don't know. Temperamental, I guess. Um, it's just like inborn contrarianism. I mean, are you're, you're motivated by that partially, aren't you? You think I'm a contrarian? I mean, I think that's partly why we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I... I I guess I have that, you know, I I don't love, because I've been called a contrarian so much that I sort of instinct, instinctually recoil. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't love it because I feel like it's a way to dismiss people. Yeah. And sometimes I'll just be like, well, yes, I mean, some of my views are in fact contrary to the conventional wisdom. Right. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. In fact, there's probably good things about that. But people kind of use contrarianism as a slur to say, oh, well, it's like, or sometimes people will say it's knee-jerk contrarianism. Right. I th- the knee-jerk part is the offensive part. The other part's fine. <laughs> yeah. Or, but like when people say, oh, Shaddy, you're being contrarian, like that's not usually a positive thing, right? Well, so look, uh, that's a, a good way to sort of like launch into what I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, your last column at the Washington Post is is my favorite kind of shoddy column. Um, like much more so than the, the shoddy column that looks deep in his soul and, and you know, talks about relationships and religion and things like that. Probably your audience prefers that, that but I, I prefer the, that kind of playful contrarianism of your, your, your column on Donald Trump uh, in the Post. Um, I think it was really well done um, in, the oh, sense, in the sense that... Uh, had all the playfulness and, you know, true observations that nevertheless are 
clearly designed to irritate people. And uh, and yet, you know, I think it comes out perfectly soundly and not like pro-Trump in any way, which is where a column like this really ought to come out. So really good job on that. And I, I think all of our listeners uh, should definitely go check it out. But the column like raised an interesting question for me, which is something I guess we've kicked around a bit, but maybe we could kick it around a bit more today. Um, and that's, you know, you set up Trump as, uh, as, as a character, a politician um, who is not bothered by ideology, I think. You know, is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, yeah, indifferent to ideological commitments, except and, maybe for one topic on immigration, which he, he has been c- consistent on for decades now, and that seems to really animate him in a way that feels real instead of something something variable but besides that i think it's fair to say that he has no strong commitments one way or the other so what jumped out at me or like what what your piece made me think about was um again you know pointy-headed intellectuals like you and i uh we do ideas um but you know, there's something about politics that Trump embodies, and I think embodies more than most politicians, is is that being unmoored by ideas thing. That, you know, I think like when we analyze politics, we like to think that people with commitments to ideas enter politics in order to change the world. But I've always sort of had this feeling that that like, True politicians enter politics because they want to win. Um, you know, even Biden to a large extent is like that. I'm sure Biden believes things. Um, but but he's in the game. Any successful politician is in the game because they love politics. And yeah. and and you know, so so in a sense, when we talk about Donald Trump, we're like, oh my God, this outlier. He believes in nothing, Lebowski. Oh, you don't know that reference because you haven't seen the, the great Lebowski. But um uh you know, it's it's uh, there is something interesting about politics that has nothing to do with ideas. I guess what I'm saying, and and uh, and Trump embodies that, but he's not alone in it. You know, so I don't know. Just wanted to throw that out there because I think you probably disagree with me on this. Um, but I wonder Wait, to which what part extent would I disagree? That I mean, you you do think ideas matter ultimately. Um, and that's where I'm driving towards here is that, you know, insofar as ideas matter, and I'm not sure how much they do, uh, where do they matter? Because I would say you probably agree with me that they don't matter at the a high level of politics, um, that it's not conviction politicians. It's not conviction that drives politicians usually, um, especially in democratic societies, because I would even put it to you that, uh, that Trump has a horse sense for what gets people angry. And if yes. people were okay with immigration, I don't think he'd be a conviction immigration politician. Um, I could totally see him being like, no, we need workers. What are you talking about? I'm a businessman. <laughs> like, well, you idiots. You know what I mean? Like, I, <laughs> I, yeah, I could see that. That's a good point. I could totally see that. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. Just wanted to sort of talk about this question of ideas in the world. Uh, because I think... I think there's there's 
there's a lot to it there. And I think it's an interesting moment to think about that, um, you know, because, you know, what's on my mind in foreign policy anyways is the situation in Ukraine. Um, and I mean, from like a policy standpoint, I think like not giving the Ukrainians arms after arming them like this, it's, 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 it's ugly and it's, uh, it's kind of malpractice from a foreign policy standpoint. Um, but the whole thing is not driven by ideas at all. It's driven completely by politics. Um, and But can it, you separate those two things? Yeah, so you're making, it seems to me, a binary distinction between a category called ideas and one called politics. But obviously, each infuses the other in complex ways. Yeah, I'm trying not to do that, I guess. I'm trying to, to say that politics is not driven by ideas um, and trying to then maybe think of where ideas go into what drives events and sort of to get us thinking up through that and like sort of BSing about that a little bit because, yeah. because you know, again, I don't think they come in through the political thing. I think what was interesting about Ukraine, for example, is that a lot of ideas were thrown at making the case for supporting Ukraine. Um, and like, basically, I don't know, they're all gone. I, I don't think it, they've been abandoned by, you know, the sort of policy class that uses ideas to justify things. Um, and they're not, you know, they haven't been abandoned by, let's say, true Ukraine supporters and like Ukrainians themselves, perhaps. Um, but it's just striking to me how we spent, you know, two years talking about all this high valued stuff and it's not, it's not a contrary idea that upends the entire policy, but just basically rank politics. You know what I mean? Maybe Ukraine's not a good example, but it, it's, it's, um, I don't know. Where 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 do ideas fall into this sort of stuff? Yeah. I guess is what it comes down to. What do you think? Yeah, well well even if ideas don't necessarily drive politics at the highest level, I think it's fair to say that politics drives ideas. In other words, what we see in our politics and how we experience America's political life subsequently shapes how we as individuals like you you see people's political evolutions their ideological evolutions because they are responding to discrete political developments so certain things radicalize us or don't radicalize us or after some after a set of events we end up moderating and moving to the center so that's at the individual level and when i look at my own ideological evolution it is very much shaped by events that were important to me. So whether that was the Arab Spring and its failure or um, the Gaza War, to use a recent example, is reshaping my ideological commitments in interesting ways. So I guess that's more on the personal level, but just a couple other reactions to what you said. While Trump himself might not be driven by ideas the people are some of the people around him are and that matters in 
a political system in which senior advisors can have a lot of influence over what the president does. So if Trump comes to power, there will be people like Stephen Miller who have very strong ideological commitments on questions around, again, immigration, but also more broadly. He's a nativist. Um, and, you know, uh, he also... I was going to say he. I'm trying to think. What are the other ideological commitments that Stephen Miller has? I guess he's sort of just like a nationalist. That's partly where America First as an ideological orientation comes from, from people like him and Steve Bannon, who do seem to be ideologues. And so, if we could have a kind of um, imaginary world where Trump comes to power but is not affected by advisors and it's and it's whatever trump trump has in his mind becomes policy that would look very differently than what will actually happen which is trump being mediated by the people around him and they will be influencing him in certain ways so i don't think trump actually is pro israel in any kind of true foundational ideological sense I think I could imagine him just as much being somewhat different, not to say he would be pro-Palestine, but that he just wouldn't care one way or the other. However, the people around him do seem to have very strong ideological commitments to Israel, including, for example, his former ambassador to Israel, um, David Friedman. I think that's who it was, right? David Friedman? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's right. So, I, you know, that's where it becomes complicated. And that... I got myself into some trouble on Twitter and maybe I shouldn't have gotten into this. Actually, you know what? I don't really care one way or the other. People can, I, I did sort of, I do like the idea of really pissing off a certain group of people on Twitter. It does give me. Contrarianism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go on. No, no, because I just think these people are bad. A lot of them are bad faith interlocutors. And to the extent that I can piss them off and they can kind of, I can see that like sometimes what I say really makes them angry, that it affects their day. Yeah. That they actually can't enjoy their lives as much because of what they saw me say or write. There is some pleasure to be had in that realization. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, I agree. This is why we're friends. Go on. <laughs> um, so, but, you know, I made some, look, the problem is, look, to... Things that I tweet aren't meant to be taken as gospel. They are impressionistic observations that I want to share because I'm working through my ideas. Okay, what did time. you say? Just I, I missed it. So just clue in the the listeners what what you tweeted that pissed people off. Yeah, I said something like um, I was at a at an event in D.C. a couple weeks ago, and this is accurate. I wasn't making it up. And there was a person there, a Muslim friend of mine, who said something like, she could imagine a scenario where Trump would be better than Biden on Gaza. Yeah. And at that time, I was like, hmm, look, I'm always intrigued by counterintuitive takes, but I thought that one through and I'm like, oh, I don't really see it. But the more I think about that, I, so what I said in the tweet was, well, I think that's a stretch, but I'm not sure I'm willing to argue the contrary, or, or I'm not, I'm not sure I'd be able to argue the contrary with much confidence. 
which I thought was actually a somewhat qualified, nuanced thing. Like, I'm still, I'm still doubtful, but I'm not going to go about my life trying to convince people that Biden would obviously be better because it's just like, why would I want to put myself in that position? Because what we have now is what we have, which is Biden, in my view, being pretty bad on this set of issues. So people are obviously going to be viscerally affected by what's happening now. Trump is a wild card. So it's speculative what Trump would actually do or not do. It's not speculative what Biden is currently doing. So I can get how people can kind of like imagine different scenarios. But I'm not, as an Arab and Muslim American, going to put myself on the line, put myself on a limb to make the case for Biden being better. Sorry, I'm not going to do it. So that's sort of what I, what I was trying to get at. Um, and people freaked out. And then I responded to something that Bruno Machai is the former um, former uh, cabinet minister in Portugal, but, you know, writer, author, has written a number of books on geopolitics. Been on our show. He, yeah, he's been on our show. And, you know, who knows, maybe we'll even have him on again in the future. But he was much more adamant in saying that he thinks he he made some comment like, well, Trump wouldn't want to be humiliated by Netanyahu every day. So Trump's sense of honor and pride would sort of uh, require him to lash lash back at Netanyahu and to just be just being mean to Netanyahu if he felt Netanyahu was over, was undermining him publicly. And I and I thought that that's an interesting idea. That seems plausible to me. I wasn't making a broader comment about Trump being better on Palestine as an overall topic, just that I can imagine a situation where Trump would say mean shit to Netanyahu publicly because he just wouldn't care because he's inconsistent and incoherent and a clock strikes... A clock strikes, what's that saying? A clock. Uh, a broken uh, clock is correct twice. Or yeah. Something. Yeah, yeah. So just by being really like out there and unpredictable, there is a chance that Trump would just say something mean and, do you, and just. Yeah. Do, you, do you remember when Trump like took a crap on BB right after October 7th? Do you yeah, exactly. That? And that was one of the examples that Bruno um, pointed to when he was making this case. Yeah. And people freaked out. Again, like that. So these were two tweets. I'm just like, they're not actually very extensive. I'm not making broad statements. I'm just saying on a couple narrow things, I can, like, it was impressionistic. And, anyway. you, may, and you may not vote for Biden, right? In the upcoming election. Like I never lot, said that. No, you haven't said it yet, but uh, but you may not, like a lot of Muslims in America. You may not. I'm not saying come out and declare right now, but like, I'm just saying you you may not. Look, I'm not going to violate my conscience, so I'm going to have to see how I feel yeah. on the day of and in the lead up, and that's still a, a long ways away. I'm not a single issue voter, so in all likelihood, I'm sure, like I imagine that I'll find, I could find a way to put my like moral objections to the side and just be like, listen, the thought of dealing with four years of Trump is just so like outrageous to me, and I just don't want to go through that in my own life. And I just don't want to have to go through all the democracy and fascism arguments and deal with that for four years. Um, at the same time, I am registered in Washington, D.C. So I think there's also an argument to be made that a lot of us who live in the district should be able to um, vote our conscience because 
It doesn't like, matter, right? Yeah. In the end, we should just do what we should feel. Like, we have our own integrity to speak to. And if, and if we're going to feel like casting a ballot for a particular person is going to be a negation of something that we hold dear and will, like, make us feel like we've betrayed our own commitments, that also seems to be a reasonable way to vote, which... Anyway, well, so like so, no one should. Re- I'm just no one should read into this too much. But I think that there's there's a case to be made on both sides of that. Well, so so just to maybe like push. There's a lot you said there, but let me just sort of push it back to that question of ideas. Um, I think it's interesting. You know, you were saying on that personal level how events shape like the evolution of one's personal ideas. The thing that that jumped out at me there is that like to what extent is ideas just sort of a coping mechanism that especially we intellectuals come up with in just sort of rationalizing and explaining the world to ourselves insofar as we spend all of our time thinking about it. So it's like we we grope around for these things we call ideas, which are basically justifications or a means of making sense. But again, that's sort of, you know, backwards of how we like to think about it, right? Like that ideas really are critical in driving things, right? Like, I mean, we talk about, I mean, in the French Revolution, like, you know, the, and 1848, and certainly the American Revolution, all these ideas came to the fore and transformed the world. Um, but again, you know, like, I, I'm, I'm also very fond of the sort of more materialist explanations of history that, that don't rely on ideas as much and just sort of talk about these things, you know, events, dear boy, and then there's a lot of reverse justifications and explanations that end up doing it. And yeah, there's some way, I guess, it all feeds into each other. Um, But like sticking to that idea, but like sort of retroactively uh, justifying things and then ideas and politics and what Trump sort of tells us about it again, you know, you brought up Stephen Miller and Bannon. Bannon, I think, is the interesting case because he is sort of like a man of ideas because he he talks real good and, and, you know, writes amazing speeches like American Carnage that like, if you go listen to it today is still fucking terrifying. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's fucking good rhetoric. You know what I mean? Like you read it. It's like, God damn. But like Trump discarded him like a fucking used tampon, right? Like it was just like, <laughs> where's Bannon right now? He's in some freaking row house, like semi homeless guy. You can probably find him in DC walking around. And, and 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 Stephen Miller, it goes back to that question. It's like, yeah, so Stephen Miller is unchained inside a putative Trump administration, as are a lot of people who are ideologues, as you put it. But they serve at the at the um, at the the mercy of of the president of a president who's unencumbered by ideas. So you know, you made the case like, yeah, Trump's being influenced by these people to do things. I wonder, I wonder the extent to which Trump really is influenceable, because that was the other part. If you remember in Trump one, it was like, you know, the adults in the room will put adults around him and they'll influence him. That freaking failed. Not a, There was no influence like to or be it had. succeeded. No, actually, wait a second. I mean, the adults in the room did constrain him. They constrained him institutionally, but they didn't influence him. And he realized that they were a blockage to his freedom of action. And he got rid of them one by one. There was no influence there. You know True. what I mean? And so, so you know, and it's funny. This gets back to the other thing, um, which I was sort of chuckling to myself as you were talking about this stuff. Um, you know, I think, like, Democrats are outraged that Muslims would, like, even entertain the idea that 
uh, of not voting for Biden because Dearborn is such a key, uh, you know, uh, part of Michigan. Like they could split Michigan. It could really put the whole thing uh, in jeopardy. And so even entertaining these sorts of things is uh, ends up being um, really frowned upon, I think, in public. Right. But it gets it's it gets so absurd and this gets back to the question of ideas again. Didn't Nancy Pelosi say that like pro Gaza shit is Russian misinformation? That this is yeah. like playing it to Putin's hands? And again, this gets at this like dumb idea we have about ideas, right? It's that like if you put I- wrong ideas out into the public sphere, people will be influenced by them and will like behave in a wrong sort of way. I mean, again, it's like there's something really core off about all of this to me. And somehow it's all tied. You know, like, again, the part that jumped out at me in your essay, in your column in the in the post, um, which I think is a really good observation that, you you know, you just sort of like smuggled in there. It's, it's the fact that you mentioned Paul Ryan is now like, you know, at best a footnote in, in, um, in sort of GOP in the universe of GOP ideology, right? Like Reaganism, yeah. Paul Ryan, all that sort of stuff. And how quickly, how quickly the arrival of a ruthless, power-mad demagogue with no ideology led an entire massive institution in American life to just abandon all ideas and embrace something completely different, completely different, that has nothing to do with everything that they claim to stand for, right? I mean, so like Nikki Haley, now the people point to is like, oh, 30% of Republicans still believe in Reaganism. I don't think that's true. I think like 30% of Republicans are probably tired of Trump. And like, it's not that like Nikki Haley's brand of Republicanism is actually motivating anyone at this point. I think it's like, it's basically a personality thing, you know, and it's, it's, And so again, you know, like back to that question of ideas and how there's something absurd about how we think about all of this these days, right? Um, In the role of democracy, I think that's the part. We like to think that ideas are important. We like to think that politicians present ideas to voters who consider ideas weigh them against their preferences, make rational decisions as to who they're going to vote for because of the promises that they made based on a worldview which is undergirded by ideas. They do this, and therefore the best sort of thing happens. But I think like even going back to, I mean, I don't know. I guess there's always was a fear of demagogues in democracy, but I wonder the extent to which it never really has been about ideas, you know? And, and like that model of how democracy works is also not true on some very fundamental way. Um, that personality has always played a role. You know, I was talking to a colleague uh, today and I said, you know, it'd be a funny essay to get someone to write how both Reagan and Trump were basically, you know, celebrity presidents. And so everyone's like, oh, Reaganism is like full of ideas and stuff like that. But Reagan was sort of a, you know, 
a happy-go-lucky kind of dumb guy. That's not, people are going to jump at me on that, but, like, whatever. And, like, I mean, there's a lot There's a lot of similarities between, like, Reagan's, the phenomenon of Reagan and the phenomenon of Trump. And my colleague said, yeah, okay, but, like, you know, Eisenhower was a celebrity politician as well. Um, you know, like, war hero comes in and it's just, like, sort of larger than life, and people vote for him because of that, not because he was, you know, again, sort of, espousing ideas i don't really know enough about like eisenhower's like politicking to judge that one but you know what i mean it's like it's we have this idea about ideas and in politics in democracy in society and and on every level like i think trump gives us a profound insight into how we think about all of this wrong and it's the fact that we're so offended by trump as a phenomenon that like we latch on even more firmly to this view of ideas and things in in our like the life of our republic that are wrong that are fundamentally not true how things work yeah yeah so i think you're right that there's something about trump and and i think what you're talking about is part of it where he it's it's not so much that you know he's a fascist or a threat to American democracy as we know it. I don't doubt that people sincerely fear worst case scenarios, but I think there's something that Trump arouses viscerally in people, and I think you're pointing at it that he he sort of attacks and undermines our 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 entire notion of how politics should be that he makes something that is supposed to be rational, irrational, that he makes something that's supposed to be about ideas, tribal. And he's the one who ushered in a fundamental change in how presidential elections happen. I mean, before 2016, policy mattered. I'm not going to pretend that policy was always the fundamental driver, but there were people would consider the different policy preferences of Obama and Romney and people would discuss those differences and it would be relevant. But no one is really going to go in November 2024, later this year, and be comparing the the policy positions on Trump's campaign website and the policy positions on Biden's website and say, hmm, interesting. Here are some policy differences. I'm now going to change the way I vote because I learned something new about um, their preferred policies. Like that literally, I mean, maybe there's going to be like five people who vote that way. I have not met anyone who is planning on voting that way come November. It's existential and it's tribal. Don't you think Obama... It's about identity. Don't you think Obama won on the strength of his personality and just how appealing he was? rather yeah. than policy prescriptions. I mean, he came as a blank slate in 2008 in a lot of ways. And and he represented emotions rather than ideas. I would put it to you that way. And he was very yeah. good at channeling that. You know, so in a way, one could even say like, you know, if one is to sort of track this celebrity presidentialism from Reagan on, I mean, Clinton was an incredible charisma charismatic figure. Um, arguably, he beat Bush by mocking him uh, and saying, like, it's the economy, stupid, right? Like, that was the the whole sort of thing. I guess that's a policy prescription, but it it was also a kind of, you know, 
emotional appeal. Um, and like you look back on it, like, good Lord, I, I still don't understand how Bush won two terms. Um, but but like, I mean, he was also uh, look who he was up against. Exactly. People I was who about didn't to say, have personality. Exactly. I was about to say uh, Al yeah. Gore and John Kerry. He two was of the most uncharismatic candidates in, of recent decades. A gift, a gift. Right. Like that. And and, you know. I personally could never, I think, bring myself, I wasn't a citizen back then, to vote for Bush. But, like, in retrospect, kind of like with Reagan in retrospect, like, I get it. Like, you know, whatever. He's, he's like a dude, you know? Like, kind of funny, maybe. Like, easy to get along with. Relatable. Relatable, maybe, right? Um, so, again, like, and as you point out in your, in your, in your column, uh, yeah, maybe you wouldn't want to get a beer with Trump. But like, he's fine. Okay, personally, I—I I mean, I—I he I doesn't drink. Know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, you'd—you can imagine like hanging out with Trump and being amused by the experience, right? I know people would be like, "Oh my God, how could Shaddy say that?" So here's the thing, and I also said in the piece that Trump is funny. Yeah, people freaked out. I actually refer to Trump as appealing, and I, that doesn't mean that I necessarily find him appealing, but that. A lot of people find him appealing. That's why they vote for him. Right. You have to make an effort to understand the sources of a president of a presidential candidate's appeal. Yep. Like you have to know your enemy. You have to make an extra effort to see why people like him. And even that, because just by doing that, people feel threatened. It's really remarkable. That's it for part one, dear listeners. There's a lot more where that came from. If you're not yet a paying subscriber, please head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and become one. Help support our work. Hope to see you in the bonus.